Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I always want to give a, a quick thank you to Holy Redeemer Hospital, who is our core sponsor here for the show and, and allowing us to bring you some wonderful stories each and every week. Um, I'd also like to give out our website so that if you're listening, you can tune in and see who's coming on the show. Uh, our website is womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Um, as we do every week, we have Dr. Beth Dupree joining us uh, from the hospital this afternoon. She's at Holy Redeemer, where we tracked her down. We never quite know where she's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. I just left the OR not so long ago, so I made it. I crawled up to the fourth floor and tucked myself in here, so it's all good. Good, good. And uh, just quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll give the name of our guest. Um, we are very lucky to have with us this afternoon Caroline Cummings. And Caroline is the Vice President of Business Development for Palo Alto Software, which is headquartered in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Um, I want to give a, a quick mention to my son, who I believe connected us. He's always yes. looking out for me and has my back, and, and I know that he came up to you after a speaking engagement at Drexel and said, you know, you have to check out my mom's show. So that's yeah. a thank you to Chris Rocco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Beth, I want to bring you right into the conversation with Caroline uh, because she actually has had some experience in her lifetime that is very closely associated to the work that you do. And um, I think it would be a great opportunity to, to have a discussion and uh, have her perhaps ask you some questions as well about that experience. And uh, Caroline, uh, at the age of 19, they actually found something suspicious on her breast. And she has been, um, for for many years, having to go and be checked and, and followed and, and watched closely. So um, Caroline mentioned that some of the testing that she's had done has to do with thermography and uh, medical infrared imaging. Anna, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to that, Beth, and, and give her some good um, some feedback. Well, first of all, uh, Carolyn, you were 19, so obviously you felt this lump in your breast, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, because 19-year-olds are not getting routine imaging. And so it's not uncommon that myself or my partner see a, a young woman come in with a lump in her breast. And despite the fact that it is incredibly, incredibly rare for a 19-year-old to have breast cancer, there are um, certain cancers that can show up in very, very young women. So we take everything very seriously when someone has a breast lump. But our job mm-hmm. as, the, as the breast health uh, provider is to prove that the lump that they feel is not cancer. And since the vast majority of them are not cancer, it, there's a, a series of things that we go through. And I would assume that you were sent for an ultrasound when you found the lump. Is that true? That's correct. Yeah, because uh, what a lot of people don't understand is when you feel a mass at that age, um, a mammogram has absolutely no 
place in the diagnostic workup of a 19-year-old initially. And so because you feel the lump, they, you send it for an ultrasound. And what the ultrasound can show is whether the lump is filled with fluid, which is a cyst, or whether the lump is solid or has um, matter in the inside of it. So I would be willing to bet you that it was solid because otherwise we wouldn't be having this discussion. Absolutely, yes, that is correct. <laughs> okay, so the most common solid mass in a 19-year-old is what we call a fibroadenoma, which is a big word for, um, I tell everybody, it kind of, when you, when you remove them surgically, they look like a Super Bowl because they have that very, very dense, packed uh, feeling. And in young women, I, I kind of describe it as a breast mouse because it's like the computer mouse as it jumps around. A lot of times you feel it kind of moving throughout the breast, not around the whole breast, but it's, it's relatively mobile. So um, the standard of care with a lump like that is to just prove that it's benign. And there are multiple different ways that you can do that. Um, and because there are certain types of lumps like that that fall into a spectrum of um, proliferative breast disease called phylloides tumors, um, many times we will either watch them to make sure that they don't change with ultrasound or um, do a core biopsy to prove that the area is benign. Um, and back when I started training 20-some years ago, we, uh, we would remove them surgically in the operating room, but we rarely have to do that anymore because we can do a minimally invasive biopsy um, or potentially follow someone just to make sure that their ultrasounds are not changing. Um, and I, I'm not sure what they did with you. Did they follow it or did they biopsy it or did they remove it? They didn't do any of that. They actually just kept monitoring it for me. And so I, I would have, every year I would have a mammogram and every other year they would do an ultrasound. Okay, so you did that when you were, you had a mammogram at 19? <clears throat> Correct. Well, I, that's, I'm not sure who you saw or, or what their rationale was unless you had a very significant family history or a, a genetic predisposition, but I, we typically do not do mammographies on women under 30 unless we, they have a specific lump that we're looking at and we can't identify it as something on an ultrasound that appears to be benign. But obviously every case is individual. Um, mm -hmm. Mammography we use in, in women um, you typically over the age of 40 for screening, but your case was different because you actually had a lump that you could feel. And mm -hmm. Susan had mentioned something about infrared. Did somebody do a thermography with you? Yeah, that happened after I moved out to the West Coast um, after having lived in Philadelphia for a while. And my doctor recommended this woman who did that. And I wasn't really sure what it was, but apparently it was just another way to look at the lump in the breast area with the uh, sort of a heat map that looked like that was over top of it. Is that what it is? Correct. When, when cancers are forming... Um, we, they have a process we call neoangiogenesis, or in layman's terms, the ingrowth of blood vessels that feed tumors. So the whole idea behind the infrared technology is that it, sh it shows a heat map, so the blood vessels would increase uh, the flow of that area, so the temperature would go up, so it would show up on these scans. The, the mm. downside of these scans is that there are a lot of cancers that don't have that ingrowth of blood vessels, so they, they tend not to be hot on, uh, on a thermography. So, you know, I will, patients will ask me if they can get a thermogram instead of a mammogram. And I said the thermography does not replace mammography. And they're, very, they're even very specific about that on their website under the technology, that you can use it as an adjunct to mammography, not instead of. 
Um, mm-hmm. There have been some studies done, actually one done at Bryn Mawr, where our fellows that we train come from, that looked at thermography and mammography, and the mammogram had a much higher sensitivity and specificity at finding early cancers. But again, thermograms are something that can be used as an adjunct, but not instead of other forms mm-hmm. of imaging. Yeah, and and I did do both. They didn't say, oh, we're not going to do the mammogram or the ultrasound anymore. It was just another technique to see if they could find anything different, and I haven't had any problems with it. Um, After I got a hysterectomy four or five years ago, the pain that I had there has pretty much gone away. It was probably painful from the estrogen, but the, uh, the, 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 down, the one downside of thermography is that you can't, if they see something that's hot, there's no way to localize that area to actually go and biopsy it. You know, it's, they don't, there's no biopsy technique associated with it, but I, I think probably with some more research and development, you know, potentially the thermography uh, gurus will be able to come up with a way for us to be able to target those areas because that's what you really need to do that. But it sounds like you were pretty smart in your um, – care of yourself because you took control of it and uh, the, the fact that now your pain is gone since you're, the source of the estrogen has diminished is, is also a positive thing. Yeah, definitely. You know, so Beth, for, is there something you would recommend for Caroline moving forward now in her life or at this age that she should do any differently from any other woman who you know is, is risk-free? Um, well, every woman's not risk-free because we were born women, unfortunately. That's our highest risk factor is having mm-hmm. been born as a double X. Um, that puts us at the greatest risk. Right. But, you know, the, yeah, I think we, we had our, our discussion after my meeting at the American Society of Breast Surgeons. The best thing most women can do is, you know, maintain a healthy body mass index, you know, 26, 27 range or below, um, exercise three times a week, eat a healthy, balanced diet, and try to de-stress and make sure you get enough sleep at night. So um, I don't think uh, Caroline can de-stress. It looks like by your Twitter page that you had a, a nice little <laughs> eventful flight home and that you barely made it. Um, yes, I, but that's okay. I, I had a few minutes to relax before the call, so I'm good. <laughs> I love it. But you know what? Those, those are those stresses in life, those things that are beyond our control. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is, but you made it, and we're happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the information. You know, um, Caroline, I, I would want to go back. You know, we we just spoke a little bit about, you know, you at age 19 and, and some of the things you had to go through. But I want to go even further back with you because I um, I first want to have you talk for a few minutes about your family and growing up in Oregon. And then I want to share a wonderful story that you shared with me that I th- think speaks so directly to your innate ability to lead and kind of go after what you want. Um, but let's start with your family growing up and, and where that was. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in New Jersey, in South Jersey, um, a little town called Maze Landing. We were about 15 minutes from Atlantic City, 20 minutes from Ocean City. And so I loved being really close to the beaches and the boardwalk. It was a great childhood in that way because I had Italian grandparents who lived in the Italian neighborhood in Atlantic City, which I think they called Ducktown which is really funny because I live in Eugene, Oregon now, and the Ducks are the athletic team, and so I'm back living in Ducktown again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very familiar with Mays Landing. It's a beautiful, you know, little town, but I, I had never heard about Duck Duckville or 
Yeah, Ducktown is Yeah, that was that was um, two streets there in the Italian neighborhoods, and my Italian grandparents moved there from Philadelphia. Okay, and so we used to go there and have some homemade raviolis, homemade gnocchis. My grandmother would make homemade sauce, which of course we call gravy out here. Mm. I think it's brown when I talk about gravy out here. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, my mom and dad had four kids very young. Um, I'm the second oldest. I have a sister who's 17 months older than me, and I have two younger brothers. And they had all four of us in five years. So by the time my wow. mom was 24, she had already had four children. Wow. And was she yeah. working outside the home? Yes, she was working outside the home. My father was an artist, and so he had an artist studio in our home. And we were kind of able just to run around the streets in the neighborhood. And it was a safe neighborhood for the most part. Mm-hmm. But it was times were different back then, as we all know. Um, you know. We were running around on our bicycles. We were building forts in the woods. We were, you know, riding our bikes. We were, you know, starting a little bit of trouble here and there. <laughs> and- right, whatever we could drum up. Yeah, exactly. But but basically, you know, the door would open in the summers. Um, we'd go out of the house after we grabbed a little bit of breakfast, and we wouldn't even be back until dinner time. Yeah, I think the and three of us probably grew up the exact same way. We we all did mm-hmm. the same thing where we had we seemed to have a lot of freedom in, in our childhoods, which I think helped to breed independence. Yes. Yeah, and and so we would go over. To, we would cut through the woods, go over to the baseball field. And we would play games all day, and never did we ever bring bottles of water or snacks, little bags of carrots, none of that. We were just going for it all day long. And so it was a, it was a fun childhood in that way, but also not a lot of the discipline and the order and the structure that I think is important for kids to have. So as a result of that, you know, I, I, I think I was entrepreneurial at a young age and I would come up with clubs for kids to join and I was basically creating my own little community in the neighborhood and pulling kids together and trading baseball cards and playing dice because I came from a family that was big gamblers. You know, Atlantic City right there, there's a lot of that that goes on um, in the South Jersey area, particularly in my family. And so I grew up with the mentality of I had to win, I had to compete, and I was always coming up with ways to bet people, you know. And so that has good aspects today and some not-so-good aspects today. So <laughs> it's, it's all those things we all get from our childhood, and we figure out how do we take them and make them work for us for the better. That's so true. That is so true. Now, let me ask you, were you a tomboy growing up? I was, definitely, and I was hardly ever in the house, which my sister was the opposite. She was a bookworm. She was always inside, always reading, always studying, and today she's an amazing teacher and has three wonderful kids who are all very smart, and so she knew she wanted to be a teacher when she was six years old. She used to play school with us, and I was always outside, you know, playing baseball, riding my bike, riding a skateboard, doing something very athletic. And, you know, causing a little bit of trouble here and there. But very, very much um, coming home at night needing to be put into the bathtub or the shower because I'd be filthy <laughs> with mud and dirt. Right. Yeah, good times. 
Right. You know, I I saw I read the word moxie, you know, to describe you, Caroline, and I love that word. And, you know, I think it's great when young girls have moxie. You know, it usually mm-hmm. is very beneficial, you know, getting through life. And I, I really want the listeners to know this story about you. At age 11, you entered a BMX bike race uh, disguised mm-hmm. as a boy because obviously Mm -hmm. girls were not allowed to compete in this race, and you were determined. And it really is, it's right out of a Disney movie. I can't remember the name of the movie where a young girl did that. Um, It might not have been a BMX race. I think it was some kind of race car um, race. And not only did you disguise yourself and enter the race, but you won and then changed the rules because the club decided to let girls enter. Can you talk That's about correct. what you know? What precipitated that move on your part, and what what did you learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was just doing it. I think that's what was really great about it. So my brother Tony and I, we are the closest in age. I'm 15 months older than him, and we were both very active in sports, um, whether it was joining teams or just in our own backyard or in the neighborhood. And baseball was one of our big sports. And then we got. BMX bikes for Christmas one year, and we would ride them all around, and we would create little trails in the woods and things, and my brother wanted to join a team, and and these, again, were the days where if we wanted to join a team, we walked through the woods ourselves, we had some money we saved, we signed up for the team, There were we didn't have parents around, and it wasn't just us, other kids were just there in line by themselves, signing themselves up, so... I think there's something really great about that. It teaches you independence and how to advocate for yourself at a young age. But a little bit of the um, parenting um, structure would have been nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what? Um, and I'm not down talking my parents either. They're they're great. They were out earning and doing things while we were, you know, playing and growing. So my brother found out about this team. It was a small little team to just do some BMX bike racing. There was a little trail over by the school through the woods. And he signed up, and I said, well, I'm going to come and sign up. And we get there, and they wouldn't let me sign up. And I said, well, why not? They said, well, girls aren't allowed to sign up. And back then, girls were not allowed to play soccer either. Well, that's just crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. Right. So my brother actually had the idea, and my brother Tony and I, we look most alike. And he said, why don't you just put my helmet on and my uniform on? And he's like, you know this this trail better than anybody. I can do it with my eyes closed. He said, why don't you just put my jersey on and put the helmet on and pretend you're me? And I was like, oh, right, this is awesome. And I thought it was going to be great. Well, I remember being at the top of that hill where you have your foot on the pedal, you have your back tire up, and you're about ready to go down, and there were maybe six or seven of us competing, and I don't think any of the other boys knew I was a girl at that point, and at that point, my heart started racing, and I could, you know how when your heart beats and you can hear it in your stomach and in your head? Yes. And I I was panicking, and, and I could feel my ears ringing, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm here. I'm in this. And, you know, my parents instilled values enough about not lying, and here I am, and I'm disguised as my brother. But what I did was I just channeled it all, and I thought, you know what? I remember being in that line, and they said, no girls, and I can do this, and I'm going to prove them wrong. And I went around that trail I don't know how many times, but I don't remember anybody passing me. I had tunnel vision, 
And when I finished, I heard people screaming and yelling. I didn't really know if I even won or anything. And then, of course, my brother came out and said that you won. And they announced my brother's name as the winner when it was me. And people didn't know how to react. People, Some people were cheering and some people were mad and booing. And it was, it was a pretty interesting day. And so after that, I just got my girlfriends together, who we were all tomboys in the community, and we said, let's let's go over to the the stadium there and let's talk to them and say that we can do this. And we didn't have to fight too hard, actually. We just had to ask, which I think is really important for young people to learn how to do, particularly young girls and women, is we're not really taught how to ask. Boys are definitely taught that more. So I think if you just ask, you can change your own life and change other people's lives. Um, I can't remember who said it. It was probably Eleanor Roosevelt or someone great like that that said, you know, we don't get what we deserve in this lifetime. We get what we ask for. So it was a great lesson for me to learn early on and realize that here I was this not only advocating for myself but advocating for other girls as well. Yeah, I love that story. It reminds me of the quote: "If you if you don't ask, the answer is always no." Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So oh. it was it was an amazing experience. I remember having this adrenaline, like for the first time, really feeling adrenaline. I didn't know what it was, but it was amazing. And the ringing in my ears went away, and instead, I had tinglys all over. It was like, this is an awesome <laughs> feeling. I want to recreate this feeling. <laughs> oh, I bet. You know, Beth, my, my guess is you um, had Moxie when you were a young girl as well. Do you have a similar story? It's just, it's so funny. My girlfriend, Emily Morris, her father, Elmer, God rest his soul, great man, definitely one of my mentors. His Her mother, um, Nancy, was like the president of the National Organization for Women in York. And um, I got to travel with them because Emily was the youngest child. And Elmer would say it all the time. Beth Bachman, you've got moxie. And I remember going home and saying to my dad, Dad, did Mr. Morris say something nice or bad about me when he said <laughs> I had moxie? Is that a good word or a bad word? Because <laughs> at the time, I think, I think I was seven or eight the first time he, he said that because we were friends since kindergarten. Um, but it's, it was, to me, it was just like it's like having that no fear attitude in life where you just you go after the things you want. And I told you this before, Sue, my, my dad always taught us, you know, the limits you place on yourself are the only limits you have in life. And for young girls to be able to go through life uh, like you're doing and, Carolyn, as, as you did as a child, you know, you're just putting it out there that, you know, you can do whatever you want and be successful in any way, even if you have to pretend to be a boy. Yeah, right, right. I think it's just such a great story. Um, it's something I probably would do now but definitely would not have done at 11. <laughs> um, just so uh, for the listeners, I just want to remind you we're we're talking with Caroline Cummings, and she's the vice president of business development for Palo Alto Software in Eugene, Oregon. And I, I want to move ahead a little bit, um, Caroline, and talk about your life and and your aspirations when you were in your twenties. And I understand that you know this was prior to your going and and making a decision to go into business school, and you did several things. Um, managerial, I guess I would say, in the in the beverage uh, industry. And I, w- I wanted to know what you learned from those years. That's a very kind of um, high-stress, fast-paced industry. And, um, you know, this was probably years when you were spending a little bit of time searching for what it was you really wanted to do. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 20s were crazy. That's one good word to describe my 20s. I went to four different colleges. I wasn't sure what it is I wanted to do. I did eventually end up managing and working in food and beverage and also retail stores, which is really where I learned that I had great leadership skills in the professional sense. But early on, I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia. I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. And, and then I transferred to FIT in New York, did that first semester, and then I realized, wow, these people that I'm competing with in this class, again, I was always competing, were way, way better than me. And I thought, you know, this, I'm going to keep this as a hobby. This isn't what I want to turn into my career. So then I went to Atlantic Community College in South Jersey for psychology, and I ended up getting an associate's in science in psychology. And that took me about three years. And I thought I would end up working as a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And I did some volunteer work for a place in Atlantic City. I don't even know if it's still there. It was called the Providence House. It was an outpatient mental health facility where men who had served time in prison were let out. And they had to continue going there every day to get their meds and get therapy. And I did that for about four months. And I realized, wow, this is not what I want to do. I love helping people, but I also need to see results. And a lot of the people that we were working with would improve and then slip back and then improve and then slip back. And I thought, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. So I didn't go get a bachelor's and down that route in psychology. So I thought, hmm, I still like this idea of helping people. So I then enrolled at Stockton State College and thought I would become a probation officer or a police officer, so I started studying criminal justice, and I did another internship with a juvenile delinquency center, and again, that was was super intense. I was too young for that, and I thought, well, that's not what I want to do, and so I finally said, you know, I'm going to take five years off and work, and plus I needed money. I was completely self-sufficient my entire life and so I had to make money and that's when I started getting jobs in um, retail and food and beverage and everywhere I went I would end up climbing the ladder and it wasn't I wasn't even seeking the top I was just I guess displaying leadership qualities and they would say why don't you have a key and open the store why don't you count the till at the end of the night why don't you help us hire people and so I eventually started running my own um merry-go-round store in the Maze Landing Mall there. I can't remember what the name of that mall is right now. Um, And also worked at the one in Atlantic City in the Ocean One Mall. Um, So I did that. And then I worked at the casinos for a little bit and did cocktailing. Um, That was a crazy three months. I would not recommend that, but you can make fast money. (laughs) That's an interesting culture down there. Yes. It was a very interesting culture. And I looked around and I saw all these women who I think were 35, but they looked 65 and they were doing a lot of drugs. And it was a scene Mm. that was not for me. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if I stay here, this is really good money. I mean, I was walking out of there with, you know, four or five, eight hundred dollars in cash. And we're talking a long time ago, over 20 years ago. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, this could be my future when I looked at these women, and that's not what I wanted to do. Mm. And then I finally had this person um, at the retail store come up to me and say, you know, you would make a great CEO. And I didn't even know really what that meant. 
Wow. I had no idea. All I thought was that something that is so far from being attainable that there's no way. I, I never knew a CEO. There was no one in my family who was like that, so that I had no one to look up to. And I started to just do some research and ask around. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to business school. And that's when I applied to Drexel University. And this was way before the Internet. So you had to make a phone call. You had to request a packet in the mail. And then maybe a week later it showed up with your course catalog. (laughs) You know, and so you had a lot of patience back then. And, and I realized this is what I want to do. So I went and studied corporate communications and public relations at Drexel. But while I did that, I was uh, waiting tables at Dave & Buster's there in Penn's Landing, which I believe that's still there. It is. Yes, yep. it is. Still yeah. there. I did that for almost five years while I was um, finishing school because I was going part-time and then sometimes I went full-time. But it took me a while and then I ended up doing a co-op program, which is one of the things I love about Drexel mm. University is the co-op program. And I got hired by Bristol Myers Squibb in Princeton, New Jersey, and I would commute from Philly to Princeton every day for a couple of years while I was in school, while I was waiting tables, while I was still having a social life. And so that that really was my 20s. I was confused. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so now when I talk to young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do in high school or they have to claim a major as a freshman or a sophomore in college, I mean, there's even studies now that say that the brain at those ages just can't formulate what it is they want to do. Right. And yeah. So, so that was really the beginning of your, you know, your executive career. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Caroline, Absolutely. We, we have to take a quick break. And when, I, and when we come back, I want to talk about the two tech startups that you were involved in. Okay, great. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and we're being joined this afternoon by Caroline Cummings, who is the Vice President of Business Development for Palo Alto Software uh, in Eugene, Oregon. And um, the first half of the show, we, we were learning about Caroline and, and her aspirations as a young girl, some of the things that she went through in her 20s, which I think is a great um, topic to to talk about, especially especially with the 
not only the teenagers, but the college kids today, the amount of pressure that they have to, you know, figure it out, determine what they want to do, what they're good at, and land that job is really tough today. And uh, Caroline, Beth wanted to, to mention a conversation she had last night with her son's girlfriend, um, speaking to just what you were talking about before the break. Yeah, Carolyn, my, my youngest is a freshman. Well, he's now a sophomore in college. Listen to me. Um, and his girlfriend, Alex, was over there cooking dinner. And uh, I asked her, I said, so, Alex, how many of your friends have either switched schools, dropped out, done something different? Like, how at 18, you know, do we expect kids without life experiences to know exactly what they want to do? And, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I went to college No, I, want, I wanted to be a doctor. So I was pretty much on that path. And, and I, I see that with a lot of my colleagues in healthcare, But, you know, to not be able to go out and have those work experiences like I was a waitress at Pizza Hut in Hawaii I waited 17 tables and I made a fortune you know back in the you know in the, in the 80s waiting tables mm-hmm. at Pizza Hut but it, it taught me so many important skills for leadership now with multitasking and just doing everything but I love the fact that your your journey is so like you you did the mentorships you did the internships you took those opportunities and I think for kids to not take those opportunities am I my son is uh, starting at Railway Industries next week um, where, where they build, you know, watertight doors for the Navy because my son, who's beca- going to become an engineer, I want him to see and learn that, you know, the downstream side of the job that he's about to do. And so many kids do not get or take those opportunities. So I love that that is part of your journey. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's all those pieces, all those jobs, all those careers, all of that interest I had, is has come to a culmination of what I do now. I, I'm using all of those pieces of myself in being an entrepreneur and working in a very high, fast technology company right now. So I, I think it's great that you're working with your son to embrace that because there are some, I mean, our, our, we could have another whole call about the problem with our K-12 through 12, um, oh. curriculum that we have in America, mm-hmm. but we don't teach kids and even in college now it's it depends on where you go we don't teach critical thinking we don't teach people to question we teach people to conform and plug in and that is what i have been fighting my whole life from you know 11 all the way through and and you can ask my mom i'm sure i was fighting before that and not wanting to conform and knowing that it's okay if you have different ideas that's those are the people who are the innovators. Those are the people who create jobs. Those are the people yep. who are movers and shakers and have that moxie. And so I didn't realize that it was something I should embrace until later in life. So it's wonderful that you are providing that and having that conversation, just alone, having that conversation with your son and his girlfriend, it's, that's wonderful. I feel very blessed. I said I didn't, you know, I, it's funny because I, I get to mentor a lot of young women who are physicians you know, who are coming out as breast surgeons, but I didn't realize the ability that I was going to have as a, a parent being able to also, you know, mentor and guide these amazing kids who are my friends of my sons. And these young women, you know, I've, I've had several of them follow me in the operating room or, or, like, if they're interested in medicine, I said, get your feet in this. Get in here. Let's go to the operating room. Come to the office. See what it's like because I never had that opportunity. I literally went to college and med school having not worked in a hospital one second of my life ever wow. before then. Wow. Yeah, so, that's, that's crazy. 
I, that, but that's why I give whenever one of my uh, children's friends has a has an interest. I said, come and see what it's like because this is not all glamour, glitz, and glory. You know, you've got to you've got to you know roll your sleeves up, and it's hard work. So I love I, I love that mentoring aspect of you. I love this the, the the path because you're putting it out there so openly that you're you may not get the first job, you may not get the the, the end job the very first time. You go out to do it because people think that that's that's the way the world is, but it really isn't. You got to you create yourself. Right. Yeah. And everything's changing so fast, so you have to find out how do you differentiate yourself when you're graduating from college and you're entering the workforce, and you have to have already had a lot of experience. Your first job can't be your first job after you graduate college. Right. You know, you have to have that experience, and that was one of the great things about you know having the childhood that I did. Is I was babysitting every day, and then I worked and sold, you know, at an ice cream parlor, and then I sold shoes, and I learned about sales, I learned about customer service. These are things you don't learn in school, and there are things that you're going to use in life no matter what you do. I think they should add a fifth year on to high school, and part of that, half of that, should be having kids work in a restaurant, and the other half should be having kids work in um, a part of it a restaurant, part of it retail, because it's it's important to have that empathy and compassion for people in that service industry and also, you know, healthcare industry, being able to understand what these health workers are dealing with, what these waiters are dealing with, what these, you know, salespeople are dealing with in a clothing store. The skills that I learned there are priceless, and there's Absolutely. no other way to learn it unless you actually roll up your sleeves and get those jobs when you're a teenager. So true. So true. It's, you know, it's that skill, the communication skills, um, mm-hmm. I think, that are so critical. And, you know, in, learning how to interact with people and collaborate and, you know, get to these ideas um, is that, you know, is at the core of any successful enterprise or business. So I think that's very true. And that, of course, is what Drexel does so well, that real-world learning. They're learning the good mm-hmm. and the bad. Of something, and then then they can make a, a sound decision on whether it's right for them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing you're involved in, Caroline, I know it's a big part of of what you do is is Big Brothers and Big Sisters, and I, I'd love for you to talk about you know how you came to decide to be involved in that organization and um, what it has brought to your life. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, talking about mentoring kids. Mm-hmm. So I started volunteering at a young age, and as I mentioned in some of the programs that I was thinking about going down that line, but when I moved to Philly, I started getting involved with a program called um, YGAP, Youth Golf Academic Program that the former Philadelphia Philly Gary Maddox started, which I believe is still active in the Philadelphia community, where I would go to the stadium and kids from more of the inner city schools would go there who didn't have parents at home, and I would do homework with them. And the sweetest kids from, you know, kindergarten up to fifth, sixth grade, and that's where I first got turned on to mentoring and the impact that I saw it would make just spending a few minutes with a kid. And so when I moved out west here to Oregon, I thought I really want to get involved in the community and... I know the Big Brother Big Sister program is national, so I connected with the program, and I got matched with. I've since mentored three girls through 
the different mentoring programs here, and one of which my husband and I ended up adopting. <laughs> oh, so that's, that's so the, wonderful. Her name is Whitney? Whitney, yes. Yeah. She's 20, 24 years old, and wow. she is, talk about moxie. Wow. I mean, she's <laughs> really special. And it just goes to show that mentoring is a perfect intervention tool. And I have this cheesy saying that I say that everybody should mentor and be mentored. It doesn't matter what age you are. And so it's great, Beth, that you're doing that, particularly in the medical field, because I can imagine that would be scary not knowing where to go, how to start, what it looks like. If you're bringing those kids into the operating room and into the the medical facilities, they get to actually sense what happens in the real world. And so that's what I would do when I was mentoring these young girls is find opportunities for them to do things that they otherwise would not get to do because they call the kids at risk, and I don't necessarily like that label, but it does describe, I mean, they're at risk of, of not graduating, of dropping out. Uh, most of them, you know, don't even have parents who have graduated high school or their parents are in prison or they're on drugs or they're just not around. And so these kids need lots of structure and lots of guidance. And so one, one of my favorite stories is the first kiddo that I was mentoring. Her name was Brittany, and she was 13, and she loved the show CSI, and she thought, wow, I, I really would like to do that. So I latched onto that as something that she was interested in. So I happened to know the chief of police here in town, and I went to him and I said, you know, is there a crime lab here that I could take this kid to? to walk around and talk to some of the um, forensic scientists there. And he said, well, actually, the largest crime lab in the county was right here. And so I got to take her, and it was an amazing experience for me. Here, I, I'm doing this for her, and I'm, I loved it. We got <laughs> to talk to the ballistics guy who was examining a bullet that had just gone through a piece of furniture at a crime scene. Um, she got to meet a woman who was um, work dusting fingerprints off of a Pepsi can, and she got to ask her questions and really sort of debunk what the CSI shows, you know, that computer that you just put, it pulls up who the fingerprint is. That's not real. That doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just Hollywood. So um, mentoring is great because it doesn't only provide opportunities for these kids, but I was getting to do things that I normally wouldn't get to do. And so it's, I, I recommend that everybody, um, if they haven't done any mentoring or they haven't been mentored, that they should definitely consider doing that. You know, that's so true, Carolyn. The gift is also, I mean, is the gift often is for the mentor. You know, you set out to mm -hmm. help a young person and, you know, you can't walk away from that without um, receiving something in return. It's really mm -hmm. powerful. You, yeah. you have done quite a bit of traveling, I understand, and I know that you've done some mentoring in foreign places. And I wondered mm -hmm. if you could share a story about some of the women that you mentored in places like Egypt. Um, sure. Specifically, I'm, I'm curious to know how you saw the difference in the women in those countries versus the United States and how they, you know, responded to you? Yes, absolutely. So I was approached by an angel investor who is an individual who invests money in startup companies, high-growth, fast-growth startup companies. And he came to me and said he had been a volunteer for Mercy Corps, which is one of the largest NGOs in the world, and it's headquartered in Portland, Oregon here. 
And he said, you know, I'm doing this amazing work um, in Egypt, in Cairo, where in the midst of social unrest, I mean, it wasn't even safe to travel for a long time. The U.S. Embassy was shut down, and there were warnings everywhere, don't go, don't go. And he said they're looking for a female entrepreneur who's raised investment capital and who likes mentoring, and they'll pay for you to go and mentor these women. And then there was a group of women, and then there was a mixed group, and then there was a newly formed angel investor network of high net worth Egyptians who wanted to invest in these startups in Cairo, who wanted to learn how do you do due diligence on startups, how do you find the deal flow, how do you mentor them and coach them, and then how do you figure out what company to put money into. So I was there for a week. My husband went with me, which was great because I was nervous. It was very out of my comfort zone, and I'm big on making sure people move out of their comfort zone because that's where all the growth happens. Mm. And what was really eye-opening for me, I mean, I'm usually speaking in front of groups of women or entrepreneurs, and they ask great questions, and I have answers most of the time or something super creative to share. Well, I was humbled because there was one group of women that I spoke to, and we are talking super brilliant engineers, programming apps, coming up with these amazing ideas to help make their lives easier and the people in their community easier. This one woman had created an app on um, picking up laundry and dropping it off for people who are busy and delivering it back to them. And sort of like how Uber works, you know, you, you, you plug in yep. where you are. Well, this they would come and pick up your laundry. And Oop, question, I would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. And the question she asked me was, well, you know, here in Cairo, she said, you know, my husband was very supportive of me doing this as a side project. But now that I'm out earning him, he wants me to stop the business. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, there's certain cultures. Mm -hmm. it's, not every, it's definitely not everywhere in Cairo. There's definitely women in powerful positions doing amazing things. But this woman was married to a man who culturally she wasn't allowed to do better than him. Yeah. And I was dumbfounded. I mean, how, how do you, what do you say to that? Right. And so I gathered myself and I said, wow, I think I had a little tear in my eye because it was just, she was dying for an answer and I didn't have an answer. Mm. And I said, I, I really am in awe and inspired by the women in this room. And I don't even know what it's like to have that type of struggle. And I don't have a good answer for you. All I can say is that you're brilliant, you're bright, and please find some other mentors, some other women who are doing what you want to do and get advice from them because who am I to give you advice about your own culture here? So it was very humbling and inspiring. Yeah, what a story. I mean, really, how lucky are we that, you know, that's one less thing um, we have to worry about as women here. I mean, we certainly, you know, there's things that hold us back. We talk about it on the show all of the time. Um, but not having that cultural barrier uh, is such a freedom for us. Yes, yes. And, and it it reminded me not to take advantage of that and not to forget that. Right. And these girls that I mentor that come from some horrific backgrounds, I tell them that story because 
they're, they're still struggling, and I'm not trying to say their struggle is less than, but I want them to know that the opportunity that they have to get out of the situation that they're in, there's so much help here, and there's acceptance around that help. And in other parts of the world, it, it's not necessarily there. And, you know, forget about child brides and sex mm. trafficking and all of that aside. Yes. This, these, these are educated women in Cairo with college degrees, engineering degrees, and they've proven they can start a company. They've proven they can get it to revenue. And now this one, one woman in particular just is struggling with, now what do I do? Do I scale back the business so that I don't earn more than my husband? And I did say, why don't you trans... And later I talked to her, I said, why don't you transfer the company into his name? And she said, well, no, it's my company. So I thought, <laughs> Right. It should. Oh, my gosh. I think, you know, the only answer to that is for her to have a some kind of a frank discussion and try to change his mind. Yeah. You know, Yeah, I don't I don't know what that would look like. Yeah, I have no idea. But the fact that they were there asking is the first step. So I think that's pretty rocking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The conversation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Caroline, you, you know, um, you, you lead a busy life and, and you're married and you have a daughter and a big job. And, uh, you know, with our world today, especially with technology, everything, and, and you mentioned this is so quickly changing and fast paced. And, um, you know, we're expected to respond immediately, uh, all day long to things simply because we can. How do you manage that type of culture that we live in from a you know from a professional standpoint what what are some of the things that you do to kind of decompress and not let the you know the crazy as i call it um take over yeah that's a good one so i'm fortunate that i work with a woman named sabrina parsons who's the ceo of palo alto software and if you're not following her on Twitter, it's Mommy CEO. She's got three young boys, and she's doing amazing things. And she has this idea of like, work-life balance is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The fact that even trying to do work-life balance is ridiculous. It's this idea of integration and um, the idea of how do you work and live at the same time and not have these separated blocks of time that you, know, you go to work at 8, you come home at 5 or 6, and then you have your life. Well, no, why can't you have your life throughout the day as well and then maybe do a little work in the evening or, you know, just find a way to integrate it together as opposed to keep it separate. That's sort of old school thinking, and it also goes back to, you know, women were supposed to be in the home and men were out earning, so there was someone at home, you know, running the household while the man was out earning money. Well, those those days and those ideas are not... Um, as functional today for everybody. It works great for some, but not for everybody. And talk about the evolution of women in our culture. So um, Ariana Huffington, actually, with HuffPost, she has this um, book out, I think it's called Thrive, um, where she talks about integration as well. Yes. So that's what I, that's what I strive to do and fortunate enough to um, work for a company that also supports that culture. So in the middle of the day, I can leave for a couple of hours and go to the park with Whitney or go have lunch with my husband or people who have little kids get to, you know, take a half a day and go to the recital or just say, hey, you know what, tomorrow I've, wor- I've already put in like 50 hours this week. I'm taking Friday off and I'm going to go over to the coast 
and hang out with my kids and that it's okay and it's not frowned upon. So if there's anything that I can instill upon CEOs or executives and businesses is to wake up and don't try and force people into working a block of work and then live their block of life at home. You're not going to have productive employees. People are going to be far more happy if they can do integration and do work and life together. And, you know, you have to practice your boundaries within that, but we do it at Palo Alto Software, and the productivity has increased. It helps us with recruiting people because they want to work in that culture, and you get to actually, you know, as crazy as it sounds, have a life, spend time with your family, and go out and build your career, and really sort of have it all, as they say, that women can't have it all. But you can if you really understand how to define what it is that is all for you. Yeah, I love that advice, Caroline. I really do. I I think that it's so important for us to realize that we don't have to be all in or all out. And, you know, that word integration, certain Beth knows it very well because it's (laughs) behind everything that she's doing in medicine is that integration. Mm -hmm. Right, Beth? Yeah, it's also one of the hardest things to to teach young women who are going out into the professional world that don't shortchange your personal life because, you know, at the end of the day at your retirement party, are the people um, that you've worked with all those years going to be the ones that are going to care for you as you get older? Are they going to be the ones who unconditionally love you? And, you know, we in, in the U.S., we, we, you know, put childbearing aside so much for our education and in in search for something that so many women are now fighting in their late 30s and early 40s to try to have a child having not had uh, you know or taken that time in you know when they were younger so you know I try to teach the younger surgeons that I work with you know don't you know don't put your personal life on hold purely for your professional aspirations because when you're good at what you do, people will recognize it regardless what point in life you're in. And I'm, I'm just looking at Sabrina's picture on Twitter, and her boys are absolutely adorable, and you are so <laughs> fortunate. But I am sure that you chose to work with a CEO who was in line with your values, so kudos to you for that. Yeah. Caroline, that's so true, right? That, that You know, it's, it's um, something I say often is my life, my terms. And you, you do, you have to create those boundaries and, and decide what is going to be right for you, you know, both your professional and, and personal lives. And you will be more successful and productive if it's, it's all integrated. Absolutely. And I do think it's a paradigm shift. It's, it's, a, it's a shifting of a mental model in our corporate culture of what it means to work hard or work productively, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be seen at 6 in the morning and still be in the office at 6 p.m., and it, it's really silly, and it's, that's probably the best word I can come up with. It's really silly. <laughs> that's my favorite word. Yeah, it's just silly, yeah, just it's silly. absolutely silly. And yeah. In the, having, coming from the technology startup world, we always say, you know, investors come to me and say, okay, you, whatever you're doing has to disrupt the market. The current market has to be disrupted somehow. And I think that's where great innovation comes from. So our corporate culture needs to be disrupted. It needs to be changed. It needs to be so that women and men can have families and build their careers at the same time. And that won't happen unless whoever are the executives of those companies create the culture and allow it to happen. 
otherwise people will still be fearful. And, you know, it's sort of like Google had those napping pods. Right. Yes. Those. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I and, want one. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but it something happened where the message trickled down that oh, if you're using those pods, then you know you're not going to get your bonus or whatever. So then people stopped using them. So if you're going to create some sort of benefit, make sure that it's not a backhanded thing or it's not just for PR. Right. You, that you, the CEO, get in that pod and take a nap. That's that right. People, people want to be led and they want, they need people to show them what to do. And, you know, this is why I love being an entrepreneur is having the ability to create, having the ability to inspire. And then what it all comes down to, and this is what I tell all the kids that I mentor, is life comes down to three things. And they all have to do with opportunities. And one is knowing when to say no to an opportunity when it comes your way, if it's not the right thing. Knowing when to take an opportunity when it comes your way. And then knowing when to offer opportunities to others. And so those are three tenets that I am constantly practicing and thinking of when something is presented to me and I think, huh, that's an opportunity. I name it. The opportunity is this. Because if you name it, it's more real. And what will it look like if I take this? What will it look like if I don't take this? And then I have to remember to not just take, take, but to also give and provide opportunities. So I think that's a, you know, if you talk to Whitney, my daughter, she can recite that. And she tell, I hear her telling other people that. And I just have a little smile on my face. And that's wonderful. Really nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect way to end the show, Caroline. I thank you so much. Great advice. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, thank you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great to talk to you again, Sue, and Beth, it was great to meet you. Fabulous. Thanks, ladies. Have a great day and have a great week, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Women to Watch.